Soundness of soul from the inside out. This is part eight. I want to talk to you about how to keep yourself in the love of Father God. How to keep yourself in the love of Father God. Lord Jesus, help us now as we come to your word. Help us all as we gather here. Help us to treasure Christ. Help us to treasure you above all. We need help by your Holy Spirit to to pour out our hearts before you. We love you more than we well express. Be Lord of all in our hearts. And give us... Give us uh, a tenderness toward your word and all that you would say to us. Let not one of us, from the one standing here behind this pulpit to the farthest rows at the back and the sides of the sanctuary, let not one of us presume that you aren't speaking to us in these moments together. And we want to hear what you say in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read quickly. I know we went through it. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, you sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you to court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? That's an interesting uh, verse because he's talking about people in the church, wealthy people in the church, And by the way, the Bible doesn't make a distinction between sort of uh, bad rich people and good poor people. That's, That's not the point of this teaching. You can be righteous and wealthy. You can be wicked and poor. There's just a particular danger that... James is talking about that he sees in this church. And and I'll try and show you why it would be particularly relevant. But when he says in verse 7, Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? He doesn't mean that there weren't any good rich Christians. And he doesn't mean that poor people can't blaspheme the name. But But there's a particular danger that James is highlighting here. And Jesus highlighted the same one. He cautions that when push comes to shove, many of those wealthy churchgoers, we all say we love Jesus, we all raise our hands, oh, how I love Jesus. But James is saying they're the ones blaspheming. And what he means is when, when the Lord speaks to me in such a way where I know that listening to him will cost me some of my wealth, I would rather curse Jesus than lose what I have. And that's not just for the fabulously wealthy. That that would apply to people like us. Verse 8. 
If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, quote, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but murder, you've become a transgressor of the law, the whole law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Isn't that interesting? Judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. We've been away from it for three weeks, but it really isn't complicated to see the link between the way chapter 2 opens and the way chapter 1 ends. If you were to look back at verse 27 of chapter 1, you'd see James saying these words. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So, compassion. Compassion for the helpless. It's one of the cornerstones. It's not the only one but it's one of the cornerstones of religion that he says is pure and undefiled. And so, as James continues writing, he's concerned that this church, or this group of churches probably, might be acting in direct contradiction to that principle. Immediately our minds kind of flash back to 122, be doers of the word, not hearers only. So, so he doesn't want these churches, these, these people who, who sit in these churches, he doesn't want these people thinking more highly of themselves than they ought. There's something going on, James says, there's something going on in their churches that betrays a true commitment to Jesus Christ. Point number one. Hearing and doing the word means loving and treating people the way Jesus would. All people. So, so hearing the word, doers, not hearers only, 122. Hearing the word puts us, puts us online with the Father's values. Genuine faith can't just be a shapeless set of words that I say or praises that I offer or convictions that I hold to. It's it's visible. It's doable. It's a living way of being. It has a specific shape, a specific identity, people who follow Christ. He's going to give us one example of it in chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, he's going to say he is. Hold the faith. It's not confess, it's not believe, it's, it's hold the faith. I remember quite a long time ago, watching a National Geographic documentary 
and it was on the Titanic. And it was released just when that movie, of course, was, was at its popularity peak. But this wasn't a movie. This was a documentary. And this is years ago. And they interviewed an old woman who was the last, uh, I believe, the last living survivor of the Titanic. And it's from her that they actually developed the scene in the movie. She was just a very, very young girl, and so she would be on the lifeboat, and as the lifeboat was being lowered, she described looking up and seeing a very wealthy man. She could tell by the suit and the dress of the man that after all the lifeboats were gone, hers was the last one, that this wealthy individual walked over to the side of the ship, took out his wallet, opened it up, and shook everything that he had out of it. And she said as they lowered the lifeboat, she could hear the man say, useless, absolutely useless. It's quite a story. It's quite a story. Wealth is only impressive to short-sighted people. It surely does get a hold of all of our hearts. We're all the same. James saw Christians in these scattered dispersed, James 1.1, 1, 1, dispersed congregations. They're persecuted, and they've left everything. They're on the run. They are being hunted for their faith. Most of them, because they had to leave everything, were now very poor. Or perhaps he saw the leadership in these churches, treating the wealthy as though their wealth made them something special. Now, James isn't calling on these churches or any church to despise the rich. That would be as unchristlike as despising the poor. But, but he's calling for some kind of a biblical uh, perspective, a biblical realism. He's asking or commanding, he's commanding the people to see material wealth with the eyes of that man on the Titanic. If you look toward the end of all things, there's nothing distinctive about merely having wealth. It can be used for great things in Christ's kingdom. You can truly lay up treasure in heaven, all of us, but money by itself makes no one great merely by possessing it or investing it or making more of it. I mentioned the very first verse of this chapter. James lays down this general principle that will govern the teaching of the next 12 verses. My brothers, 2-1, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and showing partiality. Those are the two things he's talking about. If you want to hold on to faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can't show partiality because those two things don't mix. It's like, you know, those salad dressings with, with water and oil. You can shake them all you want so they look like they're mixing for a little while, but eventually they separate. Each goes to its own state. You can't have faith in Jesus Christ and live as though you're impressed by people with material wealth. James talks about their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to one, the Lord of glory. Why does he add that last little bit? I mean, James is obviously reminding here. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Faith in Christ is accepting God's glorious gospel of mercy. It comes through the death and the resurrection of his eternal son, Jesus Christ. So faith in Jesus Christ begins and is sustained for all of us just by understanding how undeserving we are, how poor we are in terms of eternal merit for anything that God would give us redemptively. He gives that grace to only one group of people, undeserving sinners. Anyone in the room qualify for God's grace just because you were such a good person? We didn't get it because of our moral richness, because something credited to our account that made God notice us as special. But as precious as that is, there's another truth in here, in that verse. Sinners who repent and turn to Jesus, sinners who, quote, hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, they not only get to be saved, something else happens. They become to one, look at it, my brothers. They become brothers and sisters. And James' point in using that term is obvious in this context. I like to come to your house some Christmas dinner. If your family gets together and you tell the son who is a doctor to sit at the head of the table and carve the turkey, and the son who comes home and is unemployed, you tell him to get a bologna sandwich out in the garage. I would like to tell you, you've got one sick family. One sick family. Why? Well, because, because it's family. And family isn't based on whether one's a doctor and one's unemployed, whether one's rich and whether one's poor, one's successful, one's less successful. That's not how you earn status in a family. You earn status in a family by being born into the family. That's us. That's us. If you're here and you're a millionaire and the baby with a dirty diaper right now in the nursery, that's what you have in common. Family. There is something that binds us together, but it isn't social status and it isn't income. It's a common parenthood. It's being of the same roots, the same family. And so James' point obviously is 
where does partiality fit into that? All of this is nailed down in the principle of the very first verse of this second chapter. Don't be deceived in your heart. Don't kid yourself about hearing God's word if you show favoritism to one class or one group of people. You can't hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and live by any kind of partiality. That's this world's value system. You can profess faith in Jesus Christ and live any way you want. But you can't hold faith in Jesus Christ and live any way you want. I can teach a budgie to profess faith in Jesus Christ. That doesn't make the budgie a Christian. Church, resist the natural fallen tendency to be impressed by the wrong things in people. Test yourself in this. Are you more impressed with someone's net worth or the depth of their likeness to Jesus Christ? What makes you go, wow? Which do you talk about more? You should see what she has. You should see what he has. Have you seen this? Or... You know, I've seen that person inside out, good times and bad, and I'll tell you what they love. They treasure Christ above everything. Now, there's the person to imitate. Point number two. When we make distinctions between people on the basis of external appearance and standing, we become worshipers with polluted minds. That is not my terminology Look at James 2, 2 to 4. We looked at verse 1. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with... Say that with me. Evil thoughts. Evil thoughts. Now, whether James is describing a situation that actually happened in this church, or whether he's just sensing a danger and he's using an illustration like I did about the Christmas family, the message is still the same. In some terrible way, this church was, was in danger, was, was sort of playing up to the wealthy denigrating the poor, and there's, and there's a bit of a hint in the next two verses that the reason the church favored the rich wasn't so much admiration as it was fear. Look at verses 6 and 7. But you've dishonored the poor man. Look at, are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, if we're going to follow this, there's something that we need to remember. 
I said at the beginning that most of the people in this church were probably poor, and there's a reason for that. James 1.1, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, scattered, I think the NIV has. Now, they were dispersed because they refused to renounce Christ. We know that. They were persecuted. They were scattered, driven out. So that nomadic condition caused a lot of them to leave everything they had. Now, you go somewhere, and you still have your mutual funds and your GICs, and you take your cell phone, you can go online. Wealth is portable. But it wasn't them. We all understand that, right? When you left, you left everything of your net worth behind. Take a few chickens, take a few goats, run. But everything, your great-grandfather passed to your grandfather, to your father, the homestead, the land, whatever there is, pasture, it's gone. It's just gone. You had it one minute. You didn't have it the next. So there they go, these people. And there's a reason for this. The reason for this is they chose to honor Christ. Takes a little moxie to do that. And in their scattered, nomadic condition, they became vulnerable to perhaps the few who may have had wealth and power. They would go into different areas. Someone would come to Christ who hadn't been forced to leave, had large holdings, a lot of land, a lot of wealth. And so these newly scattered nomadic Christians had to eat. And so they would end up probably in a church, like a little church. There'd be somebody that would be able to employ a lot of them. And if you're a rich person and you're surrounded by a lot of poor people who are desperate to eat, you can get a lot out of them. Right? You can get a lot out of them. You can treat them pretty much any way you want because they're not lawyering up and going after you. They've got children with empty bellies. And so that's what I'm saying is that's the situation James is addressing. Poor were easy targets in that kind of a setup. Rich could easily seize the land of the poor if they fell behind in one or two payments. Those with power could be further encouraged in their sin because what they were doing wasn't illegal. It was sinful. It wasn't illegal. And then James does something truly shocking, but you have to have eyes to see it. Notice, strangely, it's not the sin of the rich exploiting the poor that he's dealing with in these verses. That's what I would have expected. James' words of condemnation aren't addressed to the rich. They're addressed to the church for tolerating the same kind of class distinctions that carried weight in the culture around them. The church wasn't doing the word anymore. She was afraid to be different. She was caving into the values 
of the world in which she lived. Does this sound familiar to you at all? The church was willing to compromise the truth of the gospel for the sake of not irritating those who were the employers, who had the wealth, who kept the machinery going. The poor can't hurt us, leadership would think. If they leave the church, no one will notice them anywhere. Look again at the way James wraps this up in that fourth verse. Have you not then made... Here's all they did. They made distinctions. And they became judges with evil thoughts. When I talk to you about evil thoughts, what do you think of? Lewd internet sites. Dirty movies. James isn't thinking along any of those lines when he talks about people having evil thoughts. He knows the church. He knows us. He, he, knows, he knows my capacity to be disgusted at some evil thoughts. Took three weeks talking about different things. I can be disgusted at some evil thoughts and I can be totally embracing of other evil thoughts. And when you and I form judgments of people by what they wear, what they drive, what they possess, here's what James is saying. That is pornographic to our God. Everybody get it? That's pornographic to God. He's as repelled by it as we are by child pornography. So there's more than one way to be captivated by evil thoughts. Think about this for a minute. If you just do the math, the book of James isn't a long letter. So in this letter, we've seen James give Five verses to the importance of hearing and obeying the Scriptures. All right? Five verses. Later on, he will give five verses about the importance of prayer and faith and healing. In this same short book, he will give 13 verses to showing partiality in the body of Christ. That's 13 verses of caution and warning. This is James' way of saying we are to dwell on this. We are to think about it. Think about it slowly. It happens in lots of ways. Pastors. Pastors and teachers can fail to deal with the clear teaching of certain passages of Scripture because they think, well, that teaching might be unpopular with this person or those people. It can happen in people in the church when, when we make financial gifts conditional upon using them the way we would like. When this happens, people start to think they're buying shares in the church rather than giving unto the Lord what is rightfully His in the first place. There's all sorts of ways this happens in the body of Christ. Still happens in the body of Christ. 
And sins of partiality are death-dealing to spiritual life of the individual and the church. James says they're, they're, they're so debilitating because of the way they, they nest so deeply in our minds. Evil thoughts. They, they don't just hurt the one discriminated against. They, they twist and numb the thinking of the whole church. That's what he means in 2-2 where he says, or 2-4 rather, judges with evil thoughts. Probably he means the church can expend a great deal of energy and moral heat fighting some sins, all the while being blind to its own failure and the way it splits up members in the body of Christ. More than once. More than once, God had to come to great people, great leaders, and remind them of this. Do you remember when God spoke to Samuel? He said, Samuel, we're looking for a king. I want you to go out and find the man. And Samuel does what we all do. He, looks for, he looked for people that were tall and strong and good-looking The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. I'm so glad that's in the Bible. Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance. Outward investments. Outward properties. Outward power. But the Lord looks on the heart. Point number three. Our church will be blessed by the life of the implanted word as we continually anchor our hearts in God's grace. James 2.5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? What is James' point here? Is he saying, is he saying God's just as partial as we are? Does God just pass over the rich and ignore all their needs and just start things out with the poor? Why did God start things out with the poor in this world? To get a good answer to that, you can look at some of the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So he picks things that look like nothing so that he can make things that look really great look like nothing. That's what he's saying. 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness. There, our wisdom, our righteousness. 
and sanctification and redemption. See, we got all these things. Wisdom. Oh, life. Let's do that. Righteousness. Sanctification. Redemption. We got all of that while we had none of it. That's what he means when when he chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. The things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So we got our life, we got our wisdom, we got our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. Therefore, you only have one thing to boast about, the Lord, the goodness of the Lord, all that he's given freely to us. We have nothing to boast about except Jesus. That's what he says. So God laid the foundation of the church in very humble ways so so that the kind of situation James writes about could never logically happen. All will be treated alike when everyone boasts in the Lord. When we learn to look at the heart rather than the clothes or the cars or the houses. Both the poor and the rich will be deepened in character and Christ-likeness, and both will learn to appreciate God in scriptural ways. Four. When Christians forget God's grace and show partiality to brothers and sisters, the name of Christ is blasphemed before the world's eyes. But you have dishonored the poor man, 2, 6, and 7. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? So when a church dishonors the poor, it, it, it does them a terrible injustice. That's the most obvious tragedy, but it's not the only tragedy. The greatest tragedy is that people who look at the church, people who look at the church won't see Jesus living there. They'll see a group. Do you ever, do you ever wonder what people see when they come into Cedarview? Do you ever th- I think about that. Do they come in here and, 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 and think, boy, they really have good music. We came with our kids. Boy, do they have a really wonderful nursery. That Tammy Fanwick. Boy, they've got an... It's, it's nice. It's a nice sanctuary. Boy, it's a good crowd. But do they, do they come in and go, you know all those people? I don't go to church myself, but I went to Cedarview. Let me tell you something. Those people are really, really different. Those people don't live for the same things at all. Those people seem to have something unseen that I know nothing of, and it's like it energizes them. And James says, When people come into a church and they see the same values being propped up that they see at, I was going to pick companies, but there's people that work for companies, I better not, at this place or that. When they see see the world's value system only in church clothes, 
They don't honor Christ. They won't see Jesus living there. They'll conclude either that he's not alive or worse, that he makes no difference in the practical things of life. The cross of Christ will be emptied of power, emptied of effect. Those outside will see nothing in the church but their own lifestyles with church on Sunday. Oh, God. And then James says, Jesus' name is blasphemed, 2-7. Can you imagine that? Apparently, Jesus' name isn't just blasphemed at the movies. It can happen in church services. It can happen where Christians have their eyes closed and their hands raised. It can happen while I'm reading the scripture out loud with Pastor Chris or listening to Pastor Rong go over the prayer requests and prayer groups. I can blaspheme his name while I listen to the preacher or the teacher. Whenever I don't treat all the members of the body of believers as equal recipients of fresh, undeserved grace, whenever I make judgments against them in my heart, whenever I don't extend the same grace to anyone in the church that I constantly receive from Jesus, I blaspheme his name. I'm saying there's nothing genuine in what I receive from the Lord. It didn't change the way I extend grace. Five. Service can get ready with the communion elements, all right? Just go ahead. Five. We're almost done. Why one sin weakens the whole life before God? James chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 Why one sin weakens the whole life. 2.8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For, and, and this is the part, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. See that 10th verse? Read it out loud with me, would you? For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. And the the all of it is the law. That's what he's talking about there. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. He doesn't just say you're a murderer. You've become a transgressor of the law. Now the sin he's talking about here, showing partiality, it isn't adultery and it isn't murder. But if you show partiality, you're a lawbreaker just like a murderer is a lawbreaker and an adulterer is a lawbreaker. We are pretty good at evading the subject of our own guilt before the law of God. And that's where these verses come in. Any kind of partiality is clearly called, it's called committing sin. Verse 9. Partiality, what is it? Well, it's, it's committing sin. 
And that's not said to put all of us under this cloud of discouragement and condemnation. But it's meant to keep us relentless in our pursuit of holiness. And the way James does this is fascinating. He reminds us that God doesn't grade us by percentages. You you don't get, you get a 65 in holiness and someone else has an 80 in holiness. That's the way our minds kind of work. James wants us to picture the will of Father God, the law, as all of one piece. And, And he wants to keep us on the stretch for holiness of heart and mind. He, he wants our lives to be, chapter 1, verse 4, perfect, complete, lacking nothing. You see, all of us in this room have sins we're nauseated by and sins we never even think about. That's a problem. And it's these internal sins of attitude and and perspective that are the easiest ones to ignore. You remember the scribes and the Pharisees where Jesus said, boy, you guys, you tithe your spices and all this stuff, and you you just overlook mercy and justice and, and huge things. Of course, if you're going to ignore mercy and justice and compassion, it helps your conscience to be able to say, yeah, but I tithe mint and cumin and spices and... What James wants us all to see is the law is all of one piece because it's all from one voice. It's all from the Spirit of God. It's all from our Heavenly Father. It's all His will as He speaks it through His Word and into our hearts and guides and shapes our lives. You can't neglect one part of it and say that you're listening to the Lord. I tell you, we're going to go outside the, is that north? The north entrance of the sanctuary, we're all going to climb up on that. You know that tower? There's that tower out there. And I say to, to Pastor Chris, we've got a chain. We're going to fasten it around his belt, and we're going to swing him from from the top of that tower. And don't worry, don't worry, because in that whole chain, there is only one broken link. Are you going to be happy with that? The chain stands or falls as one piece. It's the same with the will of God. It's the same with the will of God. The last point. How to keep yourself in love and mercy of Father God. He says in verses 12 and 13, so speak and so act. What words, eh? To people who go to church. How do you talk and how do you act? So speak and so act. Live up to what you know as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so James closes this section on how to treat people 
and those you rub shoulders with at church. And instead of judging people by their dress and by their wealth, we're to remember that we're all going to be judged. All of our attitudes make us accountable. And God will want to see that we have been merciful with others as he has been merciful with us. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the way it works in redemption. And that's the way it should work in God's house. We sang at the beginning of this service. Weak made strong in the Savior's love. Do you remember Cornerstone? Weak made strong in the Savior's love. How does that work? How are weak people made strong in the Savior's love? Well, there's a particular kind of weakness that we're prone to. The, the weakness of, of just saying, I'm not good enough. Who among us in this room couldn't look at every thought, every attitude of this past week and not come into the presence of God with at least some sense of reservation? The fear that will never measure up. The fear that we're not quite good enough. The fear that we failed too many times. The fear that we just don't qualify. And that's a, a weakness. The weakness of guilt. The weakness of fear. The weakness of condemnation. Made strong. How? The Savior's love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that has to get shown to everybody in the body of Christ equally. So we come to the Lord's table. You come, you can distribute the elements. We come to the Lord's table. And two things should be true of us that we're, we're receivers of grace and we are extenders of grace. And that before the cross of Jesus Christ, there aren't all of those distinctions. Three things should be true of you. That you're saved. Singing musicians, you guys can come on up too. That you're saved, born again, converted. I don't care what terminology you want to use. But in your heart, you recognize that there's not a thing on earth that you could do to merit God's mercy and grace. He died on the cross for you and you put your trust in his shed blood as payment for your sin. You're saved. You're current in your walk with Jesus. By that I mean there's not a stance of unrepentance for any area where God is speaking to you. None of us is perfect. But we all have to be repentant. And so when we come into this place, we do this usually about twice a month, sometimes just once in the summer. But uh, every time we come and we, we have the cup and the, and the little cracker reminding us of the blood and the broken body of our Lord, we, we bring our hearts afresh. And third, we're in right relationship with people in the body of Christ. There can't be anyone in this room to whom you do not extend grace if they have wronged you. 
Just as you received grace from the Lord when it was all your fault, you extend grace to people who wrong you when it's all their fault. 